you have your Bibles, open up to John chapter 20, John chapter 20, verses 24 through 29. If you don't have your own copy of God's Word, you can open up to page 1250 in the Pew Bible. John chapter 20, verses 24 through 29. If you have your Bibles open there, I'm going to ask if you would please stand with me out of reverence for the reading of the words of our God. John writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in such a way that as the words on this page are being read, God himself is speaking to you. Beginning in verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see... Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, in ancient reckoning, that's a week. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Let's pray together. Lord, open our hearts and minds. We We pray and we ask you today to receive your word, Father, and to be changed by it. God, help us to heed this command, not to disbelieve, but to believe. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Thomas is the character in the Bible that I feel like gets one of the worst raps. Uh, We so often call him Doubting Thomas. There's precious little information in the Gospels about Thomas, really all that we get about Thomas we get from John's Gospel. And this is the story that has sort of come to define Thomas. I, I would argue, though, that maybe we shouldn't call him Doubting Thomas, but maybe we should call him Helpful Thomas. Because Thomas asked the question that so many of us have had to ask. And Thomas asked the question that so many of us have needed to ask Thomas was honest, he owned his doubts, and it's helpful for us in today's world. Great writer and philosopher who I enjoy reading named James K.A. Smith. James Smith, he says this in his book, uh, How Not to Be Secular. He said, we are all Thomas now. We are all Thomas now. That book, How Not to Be Secular, is really his reflections on a larger book called Our Secular Age by Canadian philosopher uh, Charles Taylor. And, And we live in today what Taylor calls a haunted world. And in in other words, we we live in a world in which, though so many people are now sort of constant doubters avid secularists we live in a secular age an age not where one has to choose to disbelieve but an age in which one has to choose to believe it's different from many most societies in human history 
And so Taylor says, though, that though we have sort of kicked God out of our society, so to speak, and secularized the world we live in, we nonetheless live in a haunted world. There's still things that don't make sense. And maybe some of you this morning are skeptics or you're listening to skeptics and, and it just frustrates you that you find our music beautiful because it's a sign that there's more to the world than whatever else. It's never made sense to me why an atheist would cry at the Grand Canyon. It's just there. It's a canyon. It's an absence of things, right? But we go there and, and, and so do atheists. We see beauty in it, right? Why would you cry or be moved when your child is born if there is no God? It's just biological processes, right? That's what I tried to tell my wife when our kids are born. And she's, so I said, baby, these are just biological processes, you know, something billions of women have gone. No, I didn't do that, of course. No, I didn't do that, of course. No, we live in a haunted world. James Smith in, in that book says this, we don't believe instead of doubting, we believe while doubting. And I think that's true for so many of us. We are constantly bombarded with doubts. Smith quotes a band I love, the Postal Service, to help make his point. Listen to these lyrics. I want so badly to believe that there is truth, that love is real, and I want life in every word to the extent that it's absurd. There's a longing in our society. There are cross pressures, Taylor and Smith say, in our society. The pressure of the hauntedness that so many people feel, the pressure of secularity, the pressure of the varying belief systems around us that make it harder and harder and harder to believe in our modern age. We do a very good job of having open minds. We just have a hard time, as Chesterton said, closing them down on something sturdy. Last year, I read a collection of short stories by a really wonderful author named Lauren Groff. Uh, the collection was called Florida. It was, you might have seen it at a bookstore. It was kind of highly touted. One of the stories was called Flower Hunters, and it's told from the perspective of a lonely, struggling wife and mother on a Halloween night. Now, I think it's important that this is happening on a Halloween night because throughout the short story, there are little ghosts and ghouls that keep coming to the door. Her, her neighbor, who she's got a strained relationship with now, former best friend, lives down the road. And so all night long, she's sort of forced to look outside, forced to remember that things aren't as she wishes. The character, though, in this book, in this novel, I mean, in this short story, she's become obsessed with an 18th century naturalist named William Bartram, who explored Florida in the 1700s. And she comments on him in the course of the story after, after in this part of the narrative, she's talking about all the things that she fears. And then she talks about Bartram. And listen to what she says. She says, He was a gifted and perceptive scientist who also believed in God, which seems a rather gymnastic form of philosophy. She misses believing in God. You know, I really believe in so many ways that these ideas are precisely what characterize the age we live in. Over and over again, I encounter people who say similar things to this. Not only that they wish they could believe, but they miss believing. They miss the simplistic faith that perhaps they had when they were a child or before they went to college or before this happened or, or that happened. But doubt has become the basic assumption of modern man. But there still seems to be room for something else. Something else that haunts us. 
There's doubting, yes, but there's also the inescapable haunting of the world we live in, this, this, this unending presence of transcendence. There's some things that our secularity just cannot comprehend and cannot explain. There really is a ghost in the machine. So I do believe that it's true that there's a sense in which we are all Thomas. We are all doubters. We all feel a burden to believe and yet may find it difficult. So this morning I want to present to you three truths that I think may help you navigate doubt. Three things I think every Thomas must own. Three approaches, I want to help you. These are things I've done in my own life, and I hope that it will help you. Three approaches to dealing with doubts. Here's the first point this morning. The first thing I hope you'll do is own your doubts. Own your doubts. Now, that doesn't seem maybe to some of you like a very preachery thing to say, right? Own your doubts. In fact, over my years, I've encountered ministers and pastors and other people who would say things, what are you doubting for? You know, it's just like it makes everybody in the room uncomfortable. You just try that next time at a Bible study, you're in a small group Bible study. Just raise your hand, and it, whether it's true or not, you know, let's just do an experiment. That's not very preachery either, but okay, whatever, bear with me. Raise your hand and say, I'm just having a hard time believing this, and see what happens in the circle. Everybody is going to really get uncomfortable right? Some of y'all do this, I know, and they can, you can probably testify to this. You, you know, I'm really struggling with this passage, and watch how the room, it's not very churchy, it's not very preachery to say things like, own your doubts, but I want you to know that I think it's very important that you do this. It's very important that you own your doubts. Thomas hears, we learn from John, he hears the testimony of the others, but he doesn't believe Immediately. Now, if I was sitting around writing up a good story, what I would want to do is I would want to say all the disciples were at the tomb waiting on Jesus to raise from the dead because they had listened so well and read their Bibles so well that they knew that Jesus was going to be raised from the dead. But that is not the picture we have of the disciples. In fact, here's Thomas, one of the twelve, one of the inner circle of the Lord, one of the people that Jesus himself discipled, and yet he has heard the testimony of John and Peter and the other disciples, and yet he doesn't yet believe. He doesn't believe immediately. What does he say? They said, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. In other words, there's a sense here in which I think what Thomas is saying is, you dudes have seen a ghost. He, he's saying what, what historically lots of people have said about the disciples. Some phantom appeared to you or psychologically you wished he was still alive and so therefore you believe or that in your faith he raised from the dead and you want him to be alive. Thomas is having none of these things. He explains his own need to see the risen Lord and to see and to even feel proof positive that it's actually him. Thomas is owning his doubts. I want to tell y'all something. I want you to know this. God is not afraid of your doubts. The, the Lord is not afraid of your doubts. He can handle your doubts. I, I'm going to tell you, I think each and every human being is precious in the sight of God. But you're not so precious and so brilliant that you're going to take your thoughts and your doubts to God and God's going to say, oh no, oh no, I can't handle this one. 
This guy's brought me too much. No, no, no. God can handle your doubts. He's not afraid of your doubts. It it, it feels to me like so many people, especially uh, Christians I know, and and people especially in in the South, in the Bible Belt, have pressed themselves into sort of a, a, a corner, pressed themselves into a dichotomy. They forced themselves between two choices, neither of which I think are perfect. One choice, which we're going to deal with in this point, is to just ignore your doubts. You know, that's Matt Alexander in the youth group. Nah, you don't need to think about that, son. Just ignore it, right? Well, that, over time, can become a disaster. Right? It can become a disaster if you have genuine, authentic questions. But I think there's another side of things. Because we tend to ignore our doubts, the other side is just to totally give in to them. You either, you either ignore your doubts or you just totally embrace your doubts. And I, I really don't think either one of those is the best thing. But especially to you this morning in this point, I want to encourage you. And we'll talk about the other in the second point. But I want to encourage you, don't ignore your doubts. Listen to what Tim Keller said in his book, The Reason for God. He says, a faith without some doubts is like a human body without any antibodies in it. People who blithely go through life too busy or indifferent to ask hard questions about why they believe as they do will find themselves defenseless against either the experience of tragedy or the probing questions of a smart skeptic. A person's faith can collapse almost overnight if she has failed over the years to listen patiently to her own doubts, which should only be discarded after long reflection. In other words, take your own doubts seriously. It's a serious thing. And I want to encourage you further, as Keller does later in another paragraph, take take the doubts of your friends seriously. Take the arguments that you encounter seriously. Think through them. Don't ignore them. Embrace them. You see, Thomas is doing the same thing. He wants some proof. He cannot blindly believe. Thomas is openly, honestly owning his doubts. Will you own yours? Second point is this. Own your doubts, but second of all, don't let your doubts own you. Don't let your doubts own you. As I said a minute ago, we, I feel like we have two responses to doubt. Or we forced ourselves to only have two responses to doubt. I see oftentimes two responses to doubt. Either ignoring doubt or just embracing. Just a full capitulation to doubt. But I don't think either is ideal. Notice what the text says. A week later, Thomas encounters the risen Christ. Now, I'm saying a week, even though the text says eight days. And you might say, well, Christians really are gullible. Because this guy is trying to make it sound like weeks or eight days in the ancient world. Now, obviously, that's a ridiculous thought. Uh, <laughs> weeks for seven days then, just like they are now. But the reality is that unlike us in today's day, if I say a week from now, I start counting Monday. I don't count today, but in the ancient world, they started counting today. And so eight days would count, because why? Why would, a, why would Jewish people start counting today? Because the day starts at sundown. The next day starts at, at, at sundown. So, so we recognize then eight days, it's, it's probably the same day a week later. It's, a, it's another Sunday. And so eight days later, a week later, seven days later, Thomas encounters the risen Christ. Jesus does a few things I find interesting. One is it seems as if, again, his glorified body is 
is able to go through walls or go through locked doors. Once I might say, well, it doesn't say he didn't do it. But, but two examples where John makes it sort of ambiguous like this makes it clear to me that Jesus is appearing on the other side of a locked door. I think the fact that he says both times, peace be with you, is important because they're kind of huddled up. They're scared. They're hiding. That's why they're locking the doors. Jesus also, not only does he display his glorified body and its ability to walk through walls, but he also, what else does Jesus do? Jesus also displays his omniscience. He knows everything, right? So, so he didn't get a letter from the other disciples, dear Jesus. I just want to let you know, I know we saw you, but Thomas is having a hard time. I think he may need to get kicked out of the group. You know, that's not what happened. You know, we didn't, he didn't get his skepticism reported to the Lord. Jesus knew. And what does Jesus say? He offers immediately to Thomas. Immediately to Thomas. Verse 27. Put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And what does Thomas answer? The greatest Christological confession, arguably, in the New Testament testament my lord and my god and you notice he receives no rebuke from his lord and his god jesus of nazareth so thomas though he doubted when he saw jesus i think jesus offered to meet his stipulations but i don't see necessarily that thomas actually put his finger in jesus side or or felt the wounds in his hands i think seeing the lord was enough I think we learn here that Thomas, though he owned his doubts, he wasn't being owned by his doubts. Now, what do I mean by that? What I mean is, can you doubt your doubts? Yeah, it's just a question. Can you doubt your doubts? Now, that doesn't mean to ignore them, but it doesn't mean that we must evaluate our doubts. You see, I think we live in an age where a secular worldview a secular worldview is just assumed. It's axiomatic. We, we just assume it's true. We assume that you have to see and touch and taste and feel everything that exists. We've established new, untested, secular fundamentalism where you just blindly, by faith, believe whatever it is you're told. Listen to Tim Keller in, in another book called Making Sense of God. Listen to this. He, he talks about a skeptic's response to a sermon where he was told to doubt his doubts. This man, a sophisticated New York City man, said this, I'd never realized there had to be some faith under my doubts. And when I looked at the things I did believe, I discovered I didn't have good reasons for them. When I started to examine some of the bases for my doubts, faith in God didn't seem so hard. William Lane Craig famously has this book called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. In other words, the reality is, and, and I'm not saying that, that there's a one-for-one one exchange between trusting science and trusting the Lord or putting your faith in Jesus, becoming a new Christian. Obviously, there are varying levels of faith. There are difficulties that are present in trusting the Lord, and, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But the, the bottom line reality is that many of us have doubts that we've never really evaluated. It's amazing to me how many people I find whose entire worldview is based on memes they've read on the internet. Just God's a, God's, believing in God's the same as believing in a monster in, in your closet or believing in a flying spaghetti monster or whatever else. And, and that's just that for them. They, they, they just believe it true. it's true. As soon as they hear them, it's, it's, it's a worse testimony than someone who heard Bible stories on a flannel board their whole life and just believed it. it, it, it it's, it's, it's a worse testimony than that because it's totally unfounded, totally, totally based not on reason, but on assumption. 
You see, we, we, we live in a time where we tend not to own our doubts, but to let our doubts own us. To just capitulate to our doubts. One of my favorite thinkers in Christian history is a guy named Blaise Pascal. And Pascal, uh, his writings kind of come to us uh, from a little collection of his sayings called the Pensees. And so in the 434th Pensee, listen to what Pascal says. What then shall man do in this state? That is a perpetual state of doubt. Shall he doubt everything? Shall he doubt whether he is awake, whether he is being pinched, or whether he is being burned? Shall he doubt whether he doubts? Shall he doubt whether he exists? We cannot go so far as that. And I lay it down as a fact that there never has been a real complete skeptic. Nature sustains our feeble reason and prevents its raving to this extent. Now listen, we could probably find someone here in Gazan today who was up all night enjoying some sort of substance that could convince us that we live in a matrix or something like that and that nothing really exists. You know, that's what they want you to think, man, you know, kind of thing. I'm sure we could find that. But at the end of the day, none of us are truly, completely, 100% skeptical. We're not doubters to our core. All of us put our faith somewhere. We trust something at some point. You see, Thomas refused to let his doubts own him. He refused to continue to press into doubt, but instead he ran to the Lord in the face of evidence. And so if you're a skeptic, I, I recognize this is probably not the final straw for you, but I do hope that it's a step in the path of recognizing that it's reasonable to have faith. That leads us to our last point, and it's this. We must, and this is believers and skeptics alike, we must own the difficulty of belief. Faith is hard. All faith, all belief, all trust in God is a miracle. Listen to what Jesus says in verse 29. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Brothers and sisters, none of us saw Jesus in the days of his flesh. None of us saw Jesus here in the world walking the earth. We have all had to put faith in Jesus, not having seen him. And this is exactly why I think we should stop calling Thomas Doubting Thomas and start calling him Helpful Thomas. Thanking God that Thomas was willing to ask the question that we need. Let me ask you this question. How do you see the Lord's posture toward the doubter and the skeptic? How do you see the Lord's posture toward them? I I know how Christians see doubters and skeptics. It's with a gigantic eye roll. It's just sort of a condescension. They just have thought too much, or they they just believe ridiculous things. And, and, And I think it's unfair to treat doubters and skeptics that way, because that's not how Jesus treated them jesus says blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed he says it was easy for thomas it's going to be harder for others what is the lord's posture toward the doubter toward the skeptic now obviously jesus has commanded all people to believe including thomas however i I really do think that jesus's general disposition toward the doubter is a position of grace and love of a desire to gather the skeptic home to himself i don't i don't think jesus has got arms crossed looking down at the doubter of the skeptic, I think Jesus has a hand out, looking eye to eye, face to face with a doubter, with a skeptic. You know, I don't think our churches in the South and in America have always done the best job of welcoming and loving skeptics and doubters, but I want you to know today 
that Jesus is not scandalized by your doubt. He recognizes that it's not easy. He's not here to chastise you. He's there to love you and to help you see the truth. And I also want you to know that this pastor is not scared of or scandalized by your doubts. I'd love to help you. I'd love to walk you through this. And so if you're a skeptic or a, or a, a doubter who's listening to this sermon today or on TV or later even, I, I want you to ask yourself some questions. Here, here's just a list of questions I want you to ask yourself is it reasonable to have faith am i owning my doubts or do my doubts own me are you evaluating the secular beliefs that you take for granted does christianity make sense of the world does the gospel speak to my deepest needs and desires have you ever found yourself with a desire this would be a good moment to pray do you want christianity to be true let me ask you this question today. Does belief, does faith seem impossible to you? If it does, it's because it is. By your own power, in your own abilities, you're not able to believe. Faith is always a miracle. Faith is always a gift of God. Faith is always something that Jesus helps us with. Belief is hard, but Jesus is greater. And maybe you're hearing this, thinking through this, and you're thinking to yourself, I miss believing in God. I miss believing in God. He misses you too. He misses you too. I want to offer an invitation this morning. If you've never put your trust and faith in Jesus, but you want to for the first time today, this altar is open for you. Second of all, you, you may... Uh, be a believer and you may say pastor I've just been trying to push some doubts down but I, I want to believe I, I think I believe but I just need some time with the Lord and 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 I want to pray at this altar today or or there may be something totally unrelated to the sermon you want to pray to this altar is open for you today and you finally may be looking for a church home I love to talk to you about what it means for you to be a member here at First Baptist Church after this prayer I want to invite you to come let's pray together Lord, we thank you so much for Jesus Christ. We thank you for his gospel. And God, we thank you for the hope and the grace that you give to the most skeptical, to the most secular person. And God, we thank you for the answers you give us. We thank you for the evidence that you've given us. And God, we pray that we would be faithful to believe and trust in you when you call us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.